You're listening to the National Health Executive's Finger on the Pulse podcast with me, your host, Matt Roberts, to guide you beyond the headlines with news, views, and insider truths from across the healthcare sector. Welcome back to today's episode of NHG's Finger on the Pulse podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Andrew Bagat from GPDQ. We'll be talking a little bit about what they do, about primary care, some of the challenges we faced, and what some of the future may look like. So, Thank you for joining us today, Andrew. No, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. I suppose we'll probably jump sort of straight into um, a little bit about yourselves, um, about your sort of role, GPDQ, and why you sort of came about. Thank you. And uh, and, I mean, firstly, I suppose um, my name is Andrew. I'm the Chief Medical Officer of GPDQ, but um, I'm also an NHS GP and and I've been a principal in North London where we look after sort of, you know, just over 11,000 NHS patients in our practices and I'm uh, you know a, a teacher I'm a trainer and, and very much involved in NHS primary care where GPDQ came about was really um, I kind of fell into private practice a little bit and and it all kind of started to sort of unravel when you start seeing how unaffordable and this was going back let's say in 2014-15 when you know the, the prices for people that couldn't afford or didn't have health insurance, for example, it was very expensive, whether it be to, to get a doctor to come to you, whether to get any blood tests or scans. And the prices were all very much sort of fixed for those that had secondary healthcare insurance, for example. Now, you know, as you know, the vast majority of the population doesn't have secondary healthcare insurance, but it doesn't mean that they may not want to access private healthcare um, for whatever reason, whether that be convenience or speed or accessibility. And, and really, my vision was really twofold for GPDQ was number one, to provide excellent primary health care, to make it accessible, but to make it affordable um, and, and to be delivered by sort of, you know, uh, I'm going to call it a different type of clinician and not just your sort of, you know, we all expect good quality primary care from our GPs, which is great. But it was also an ethical concern that I have as, as somebody that will never leave the NHS and I'm, I'm passionate about it. And no, no GPs work with us unless they do work in the NHS. And if you leave the NHS, you can't come and work with us. And this is a really important part of it because it's part of the sort of the second sort of reason why GPDQ began was that it wasn't just to provide great healthcare and and you know we are very lucky now you know we're the largest multi-channel healthcare provider in the UK and by that I mean that we provide home visits we provide clinic appointments and uh, remote telemedicine um, across the United Kingdom so that didn't happen overnight but we very much started off as a home visiting service actually but the second half of the company was really about workforce and as a GP, I've you know I've seen GPs that uh, that work in my practice. They've slowly reduced the amount that they would work. They you know I don't know many GPs now that want to work ten sessions or five days full days a week in an NHS practice. We were starting to see a lot of stress creep in. We were starting to see doctors leave the country, leave the profession, and worst of all, and certainly what I've spent the last ten years of my life looking at is is mental health amongst clinical professionals, which was really leading to a, a burnout level that. We just couldn't, you know, couldn't keep up with. Yeah. And and the bit that I'm probably referring to is that, you know, we lose about 90 to 100 GPs a month in this country. And some of that is retirement. But there's an increasing volume of GPs that don't want to be in the UK healthcare system anymore, which which we have to address. And, you know, back in 2015, Jeremy Hunt did mention that we needed, you know, 5,000 new GPs by 2020. Um, and we are in, you know, we've surpassed 2020. And I think we just need under 10,000 now. So, yeah. you know, 
training is the answer. We do need more GPs coming through training, and, and that is one aspect of the solution here. But we've also got to understand why they're leaving. I think pouring water into a, a bucket with a hole in it isn't going to fill the bucket. And so that was some of the sort of majority of the work that we really wanted to focus on was to give GPs a different way of working, a different opportunity that took them uh, away a little bit from the NHS setting, which was causing the burnout, and offering them different ways of seeing patients. So it wasn't non-clinical facing roles, but it really got them out of a a fixed environment and offered them a portfolio type of, of working environment. What we found really now, you know, looking back in over the last five years is that we have a happier bunch of doctors. We have doctors that haven't left the NHS, uh, haven't left the country. And actually, we've got more clinical time within the NHS because of the work that we're doing, which has been our, our one of our main drivers. Absolutely. And those are, as you mentioned, factors that over the last five years have been increasingly important. This sort of GP retention and this um, desire to ensure that there isn't a burnout among that. But especially in the last 12 months, we've seen such a dramatic change because of the pandemic. And these sort of issues that you mentioned that are not new to us, they've become so much more significant, haven't they? And I suppose from what you've discussed with what GPDQ do, there's probably quite a lot that your offering can help in that approach. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we we sometimes, you know, if we just look at what pre-COVID primary care looked like, um, you know, and as an NHS principal, I'm, you know, we were on our knees. We were never going to meet the the level of demand that was that was out there. And it, it was an uphill struggle constantly um, where levels of stress within the practice were high and not, not just myself as a principal where I end up doing, you know, a lot of the sort of practice management work and all of the additional stuff. You know, I think we could all see patients quite successfully if that was the only thing that we had to do. But with primary care came a huge administrative burden, uh, which increasingly you know, GPs didn't want to take on partnerships. And, um, you know, my last two salaries, one one went to Australia, sorry, my last three, one went to New Zealand, one went to Australia, and one went to Qatar. And this is three in my practice in North London. And one of the saddest things, certainly for me, is that, look, I'll never be leaving the NHS, and this is the bedrock of our society. But we've got to do things differently, and we've got to do things in a way which arguably we haven't done before. And sometimes training more doctors, yes, is is one facet of the answer, but actually making those doctors' lives more resilient is another part of it. And offering different variety of work, I think, is important so that people don't start to to struggle. And, and, you know, when we look at the sort of, gosh, you know, the 10-minute appointments schedule, for example, you know, this was one of our biggest challenges. And I think to, you know, uh, I think any GP will know what a three-hour back-to-back 10-minute appointment clinic feels and, and looks like when it was face-to-face. It was stressful. It was, um, it, you know, the, the, and as doctors, we're inherently sort of built to constantly think about the things that we didn't do or, or, or didn't do right or could have done better. And that was the, that was part of the, the problem with the burnout, really, was that, you know, when you see, for example, eight or nine over 80-year-olds who really do need more of your time than 10 minutes, um, it becomes certainly quite challenging as a clinician. And that was some of the things that we really wanted to address is that, you know, what GPDQ did, we allowed patients to be seen at 25-minute appointments. They were seen in a, in a way where doctors weren't feeling stressed, they weren't feeling pressurized to make decisions. And that's when mistakes, you know, when we 
when we ask ourselves to do things in such with such time pressure um so you know increasing the, the length of the appointment time quite frankly was probably one of the most important aspects of of remembering why why as doctors we became doctors you know you, you fall in love with your profession again really yeah absolutely and that is a such a key part of what we're discussing that what you're offering with gpdq doesn't take away from these 10 minute appointments or this general gp day-to-day that does need to happen it mixes it up because for want of a better way of describing it monotony as you say can lead to mistakes or it can lead to not necessarily taking the time with those sort of more complex patients that need it that will cause burnout um so it, it very much is just offer adding an extra option into it isn't it rather than replacing well that's it and i think it is about choice and we've always been about choice we don't you know as an organization now we're approaching 200 gps now nationwide we're approaching what 60 nurses uh, paramedics healthcare assistants uh, physiotherapists counselors psychotherapists all part of a growing primary care team which quite frankly is not just serving the private sector and, and and we do need to remember that every patient we see in the private sector is one less patient that needs to be seen within the public sector so it you know we are there to offer that service for those people that and again it comes back to choice you know what we'd like to do yes we do have a fee paying service but we'd really like our services to be free to the to the consumer and to be taken up whether that be the sort of the commissioners, the health board that start to to look at how we can make healthcare more accessible and available widely free at the point of uh, the point of care. That's always been our, our, our drive, really. Absolutely. And talking about that drive, obviously, we've touched on the past sort of 12 months with the pandemic and hopefully in the sort of future months as we're starting to see the likes of vaccines um, have a real impact, we'll hopefully be able to move into a better time um, if, if one does still exist to us. Um, I suppose from your point of view in GPDQs, could you talk to a little bit about sort of what your objectives are going forward, um, the key sort of cornerstones you want to achieve? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think if we, if we just, I suppose, just temporarily reflect on what COVID did, you know, pre-COVID primary care was definitely struggling. We weren't coping with the level of demand. You know, uh, you know, I've, I've spent 10 years of my life on the commissioning side of things, whether that be PCTs and CCGs. And one of the biggest challenges we've had to date has been trying to reduce the cost of emergency admissions. And that graph year on year, I'm afraid, goes in only one direction. And whatever we've tried, with all best intent, um, don't get me wrong, but it's, it's, it, we've never really touched the sides on trying to stop people going into a high-cost environment. Now, certainly, you know, we want people to go to A&E where things are appropriate, but we know from, from data, and it's, and it's year-on-year data, that potentially 30 to 40% of people that attend an A&E department or an environment such as that could be handled in primary care. And that's the challenge that we're going to see. Number one, how do we how do we stop that uh, or reduce that? But number two, the, the sort of care home population, and how do we sort of certainly start to to manage the elderly and care home resident population in a in a way which is fit for the twenty first century? Quite frankly, as in you know, we do need to be data driven. We need to involve technology into these things, and and we need to upskill our own care home staff. And I know there's a lot of work going on already around this, which is really great to see. But what what COVID did was 
the first few months was was quite scary to be fair in the sense that you know as an nhs practice you know f- for my clinic lists to be empty you know becomes quite you know whilst you might enjoy it for one session by day two you're wondering well where are all the sick people and where are they going and and how are they and who's detecting all these cancers and and all of the other things so i think covid really put a, a huge handbrake on everything i think and i think we all saw that up and down the country but what it allowed us to do at gpdq and and you know i personally really moved the entire organization and by now had had was a significant uk workforce uh, asset and we moved the entire asset to support the uk in our in our struggle with covid so really the private work pretty much stopped in the sense that we had greater things to do and by that i mean you know we had a workforce which was ready for example you know we have technology that allows us to dispatch home visits securely and safely to all of our whether it be nurses whether it be G- whether it be paramedics, we have great technology that underpins that. And we started to do things that were very difficult for the for, for the NHS to do at that particular time. And I'm going back to, let's say, in last March, April, which was COVID uh, hot home visiting services. You know, we didn't want people to leave their home. We wanted to be able to control this virus and right. be seen at home, uh, whether that be in a care home setting or whether that be in, in their own home, was that how do you do it safely and securely as well? And so we, you know, we moved our entire focus onto our COVID hot car visiting service, which the model was replicated in different areas, really. And, and a lot of the work that we'd done initially was there for, for the UK to use. Um, so, you know, we were very proud of our, our support through that. And then as as digital sort of world kicked in, and, and, and remember, we all, gosh, I've never seen uh, innovation in primary care happen so fast. You know, we all became very tech savvy literally in a week you know i had partners who really weren't going to get on with video consults or that was their view at the time and and quite frankly now they think it's the best thing since sliced bread so you know we all had a huge technology learning curve and and a shift which has moved us all to very much um uh digital triaging or remote triaging or video consultations within the nhs and and i think what that has it's had some ups and downs i mean don't get me wrong i think in the initial stages where there was no face-to-face it was still not adequate whereas now now where we're at is that we can we can offer appointments far quicker. Patients can get access to a doctor or a nurse far quicker than they could before. You know, we've got appointments now within 48 hours if you want to speak to a GP, whereas, it, you know, it would sometimes be, end up being two weeks before. And then once they had that initial appointment, a lot of the problems can be safely managed. Um, and those patients that we um, and, and there are many patients that we still need to see and examine and and, and see face to face. We bring them in in a in a secure, controlled way. But still, the number of people seen face to face has dropped dramatically. And I think one of the things that this has allowed us to do is offer our digital support as an organisation. Where what we now do is, for example, we we support systems to create capacity up and down the UK, whether that be around uh, referral management, multidisciplinary triage, particularly in settings, for example, impacted by workforce. Sure. So um, dermatology, for example, but also around last minute GP support. And, you know, there was a time when GPs were going down ourselves. We were getting COVID, we were getting stuck. And and one of the things that we implemented at this point was instant GP support for any practice. Um, And so if if a, a GP's gone sick and really you've got a clinic full of patients now that need to be called, 
we would be able to step in remotely, um, securely through their systems and do these consultations. So we'd provide that clinical backup in the background. And part of that was really about also, you can call it resource optimization in a sense, but it was, um, this, this pandemic had placed a huge burden on, on the health system, which was already overstretched with significant consequences for, for our own staff morale. And so working from remotely and working from home and, and, and all of this really started to become a, I'm going to say, you know, a lot of doctors found it quite comforting. They didn't want to, uh, because of their own safety reasons or risk reasons, didn't want to go in and start doing face-to-face yet. But, uh, it, you know, so we were offering the, the sort of digital support in the background. And I think that's probably where the, the future of primary care is going to go. Um, you know, our current workforce now, for example, we've now moved into the test and trace world. So we currently work with, gosh, you know, several councils up and down the United Kingdom, uh, and we support them with their test and trace. And that can include mobile units, it can include setup, and we, and we have rapid deployment uh, facilities. So we can do this within 48 hours anywhere in the UK, where we can land a vehicle, we have our staff that then come in, we have a full training program that goes into um, teaching and educating around the new lateral flow devices and which I suppose we could reflect on the on the pros and cons of the lateral flow devices but in, in essence that's what we've got at the moment so we're very much here to, to be a part of, of the solution um, and as and when things start to open up uh, the, the world of getting businesses back up and running safely and and getting the community and the economy back up and running in a sustainable manner will involve making sure that we've got the right support whether that be to the public sector or whether that be to the private sector. And that will always involve a mixture of skill mix of staff, but also it's underpinned by our technology base and our huge experience now in resource management tools. So, you know, that's probably where I see our our direction going over the next, um, certainly over the next 18 months. I suppose as part of that, as we have touched on through various points, um, a lot of these steps, they're mass- they've been massively important in the last 12 months. They're massively important now, but they're going to be a huge part of the rebuilding sort of going as we go back to normal. As you mentioned, the ability to drop in instantly is to ensure clinics can still happen. If a GP goes down to being able to support workforce shortages in already under pressure areas, all of this is huge because we are faced with a significant patient backlog at the moment and that's not going to disappear overnight we all have to be realist about that so having services like your own will play a massive part in that in various sort of ways i suppose absolutely i think secondary care has its um its own challenges at the moment and i think you know the waiting times for teen secondary care appointments is, is frankly colossal um and it's going to take you know years quite frankly to clear this uh in a true sense and one thing that we do have control of is in primary care and we'd really you know we're looking to help nhs organizations and public health and social care to look at what combining and we've talked for me you know and it's really welcome to hear some of the new new changes in the white paper around what direction we'll be going in next and and this is another form of change which all i really would like to probably say around change is that change is good when we do things differently and if we keep on doing the same things, we will achieve the same outcomes. And, you know, sometimes you have to think, gosh, you know, definitely out of the box, but to start to look at truly looking at what social care and, and health and social care reform looks like and how do you 
because the challenges are effectively the same, whether you look at, uh, you know, keeping people out of hospital or whether you want to reduce uh, sort of avoidable emergency admissions, etc. We've got to go further downstream, I think. And it inevitably has to lead into an increase in investment in primary care. You know, if we look at the sort of, you know, 90% of all face-to-face appointments in primary care uh, in the UK happen in primary care, but yet it only attracts 9 to 10% of the actual healthcare budget. I think what we provide in the NHS um, in primary care is arguably probably the most cost-effective healthcare provision on the planet. You know, for 150 odd pounds per patient per year, you can go and see your GP as many times as you want, and you can speak to them as many times as you want. Um, and that's pretty good value, if I can put it like that. And you know, I, and I, you know, whilst I know we rely on uh, uh, lots of people not seeing their doctor to make this model work, challenges as we start to 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 go forward w- will only increase. And I think we'd really like to look at how we can help NHS organisations realise some of the realise some of the goals. And you know, and it goes without saying really that that the NHS must maximise the returns it gets from its resources, um, particularly at a time like this. And this is what we do at GPDQ is what we do is we we, we look at effective resource optimization. And it's looking at demand management, capacity planning, and resource optimization to really start to look at different ways of delivering the same level of high quality service but more accessible, faster, on demand, and arguably at a lower cost. And I suppose one of the other aspects of that, as you say, in helping NHS organisations achieve this in a more sort of out-the-box manner, is that GPDQ being able to provide a more accessible route into some of this private healthcare for some patients where that's appropriate. It does, as you mentioned earlier, mean that those people who are seen this way are not having to be seen by the NHS. So in a, a real way there as well, it's taking some of that burden away as well. Completely. And, and and this is no reflection on my colleagues because, you know, I sit on the front line in the NHS. I'm, I'm in my NHS surgery now and it's um, and I'm very much aware of the stresses and struggles that we go through in NHS primary care. But I'm, I'm in a unique position to, to actually sit on, on both sides, um, which is to understand what, you know, the private sector. And when I say private sector, you know, GPDQ has been founded by, by NHS GPs. You know, we are, you know, we have a, a founding member group of 20 NHS doctors, NHS GPs of all who are uh, still in NHS practice, ranging from partners to salary doctors to teachers and educators. And, and so we sit under a real governance framework that allows us to make any decisions that we make as an organisation has to benefit the, the, the public sector, because that's the, the challenge that we have as a nation. And, and the NHS, you know, will always be uh, close to our hearts in terms of our goal and vision of what are we trying to do here. Um, But there are certainly things we can immediately do, and that involves not only just the sort of immediate um, telemedicine support. We have um, great new technology packages that slot into care homes, for example. You know, and it's not just having video; it's having full uh, monitoring systems that sit in nursing homes. And it's about—it's always been, you know. And I look after two large nursing homes, and, and the challenge has always been around the type of data I'm receiving from them about my patient. Whether that be, you know, I've always wanted to have blood pressure, pulse, temperature, respiratory rate, oxygen saturations, uh, possibly even a six-lead ECG. Now, if you start looking at all of this information in real time that's constantly being delivered to you, especially in the care home setting, um, you can start to really apply insights into the information that you're looking at. And 
behind those insights, you can start to attach a little bit of technology, which starts to, you know, what we've, or what I've always wanted to sort of do in, in, in my sort of dream state, I suppose, is, is answer this question, which is, can we detect disease before it presents clinically? I Can I predict that somebody's about to deteriorate in a care home in the next 48 hours? And, and having the right level of monitoring and support in those patients that are high risk of admissions, I think will definitely pay off not only from a clinical perspective, but certainly from a commissioner's savings perspective. So this is what we'd really like to talk NHS organisations, local authorities, uh, care home sectors, and, and that's our sort of public sector offering. But we do have a huge private sector offering as well. And, and those certainly are for private organisations, whether that be you know, our clients such as big banks and legal firms and, and large employers, nationwide employers, and they have their own healthcare challenges. And that can involve sort of the on-site workforce that you have. You know, we run GP clinics in these organizations. We provide them with, with support. And all the support we offer in the private sector, again, takes off the pressure within the NHS sector so that we do have that capacity. And it's about building resilience within the business world and the corporate world to ensure that you know, your health insurance is only, you know, it's only used between eight to 10% in any one given year by a, a workforce. So the rest of the people, we want people to come in when they're well, and kind of, we want them to stay home when they're unwell. What, you know, the, you know, we talk about sort of loss of productivity and, and all of that when, when people are sick, but if, you know, we want to offer urgent healthcare on-site provision to, um, to um, corporates and their employees. And in that way, you have a healthier workforce and right the way up through to um, occupational health as well. And all of it sort of comes back to this uh, this uh, phrase we probably at this point are so drilled into us, this building back better. It covers all aspects. But a lot of what we've discussed today isn't just about building back better. It's about building back smarter as well, taking all of these sort mm. of opportunities and seizing on them. Look, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, as stressful as COVID has been, been it's taught us some things and we have to learn from what's happened in the sense that we were never going to meet the level of primary care demand before but I think what we've been given an opportunity to do now is to do things differently to increase access to doctors and healthcare professionals alike in a way that we, we hadn't done before we didn't we weren't ready for and I truly feel now that we're, we're in a position anything that's relatively simple and can be dealt with doesn't need to be it's about accessing the right care at the right time with the right person and it's that's the yeah. thing that we're focusing on you know it's pointless if I need to go and see a patient at home and that's going to be the best thing for me to do for that patient then that's what should be happening but if I can manage something over video or over the phone again and that's the best way our to handle that and all of, all of this involves different levels of risk management and, and, and protocols and whatnot but but it is about offering the right the right care for the right person at the right and I think that is such a powerful sort of summary for what to have this on that we've talked in great depth and it's been a fascinating conversation around all the challenges and the opportunities in primary care but that is what it comes down to there is an opportunity within primary care right now to think a little bit outside the box and to really produce some um, some change, some meaningful change that will impact lives across the board. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the bottom line here is, is how do we start to make a meaningful difference into what patients receive? You know, I, I just don't think waiting two weeks for an appointment now is good enough. You know, and I think what we've done is we've achieved, you know, whilst it's been 
arguably the toughest year of, of all of our lives as we start to come out of the of the ashes you know we've got to make sure that we come out stronger that we come out more resilient we come out with solutions that are going to last and and people have again people are being uh, getting what they really wanted from a world-class health service and that's what we want to play at gpdq a part in providing Absolutely. And hopefully those that have sort of listened and engaged with this episode will have maybe heard some of those things and really felt that sentiment come through. I know myself, I certainly have. Um, and it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to um, Andrew. It's been a great conversation. There's been some really insightful things. And I'm sure that those in our audience will think the same as well. So thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of NHE's Finger on the Post podcast. Join the conversation on social media or get in touch through the link on our website. To stay up to date with all the latest news and episodes, make sure to subscribe, drop us a rating on whatever streaming service you're using. This has been National Health Executive's Finger on the Post podcast. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.